Uh, well, welcome once again. My name's Alberto. I serve here uh, alongside our amazing college ministry, and I have the honor of opening up the Word of God with you guys today and unpacking it. So we've been in Romans for a little bit now, and so what we've been doing is going kind of chapter by chapter, in some places verse by verse, and unpacking this ancient scripture and seeing how Paul's writing still speaks to our lives today. And so where we find ourselves today is in Romans chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, will you please open up to chapter 10? If you don't have a Bible, you can Google the scriptures or download a a Bible app. But I want to encourage you uh, to read the scripture with me uh, and, and get, you know, in the word with me. So will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. It says this. I... Brothers, the one got me for a little bit, okay. Uh, (laughs) I, brothers, okay. Brothers, yeah. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So we have this tradition in our house that after we read the word, we say the word of the Lord, and then all together we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated as we pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we ask that as we uh, unpack this text, God, and look at it, Father, that, that you would remove any distractions that we brought with us into this place, Lord. And that you would uh, give us focus, Father, uh, that you would allow us, God, to clearly see you in the scriptures, Lord. And my prayer, Father, is that we'd be transformed by your word, God, that we would leave here a little bit different than when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So with the remaining time I have with you guys, I kind of want to zone in on four specific words, four subjects uh, that kind of reveal themselves in these four verses. And these words are saved, zeal, righteousness, and law. Saved, zeal, righteousness, and law. So in the fifth grade, uh, I remember standing in line in the hallway. Uh, I think we were kind of being escorted to the next class or lunch. I can't remember. And uh, I, I was standing there, and the kid in front of me, his name was Kirk Brown. And he looked at me, and he asked me one of the weirdest questions I'd ever heard in my life. He said, Alberto, are you saved? And, and at this point in my life, I had, I had no uh, sort of Christian experience. I would grew up in uh, a Catholic church, and so this word just made no sense to me. And in this moment, I remember being so overwhelmed, so anxious, like, what does this saved mean? And so instead of answering directly, I kind of gave him like a weird nonverbal nod that could mean anything. And I was like, hmm, yeah, saved. <laughs> And then, and then he followed it up with, with, with another question. He said, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? And I'm like, what's going on here? Like, it's fifth grade. Who are you, Kirk Brown? And uh, I, I, I knew the words, okay? I knew Jesus. I knew Christ. I knew Lord. I knew Savior. I knew that much. And so I just confidently answered, yes. Yes, he is. And then he looked at me and he says, have you been baptized? And I was like, oh, man, that one's easy. Yeah, I've been baptized. If you, like, go through my Instagram, I was baptized as a baby, and I have, like, these awesome Pope robes. It's, like, super cool. And so that was super easy for me to answer. And then he looked at me and he said, I'm getting baptized this Sunday because I've made Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior. And I'm like, what? That's, like, for babies, man. You're like, you're a little kid. You don't get baptized. 
And I remember leaving that conversation. I mean, it, was, it happened so fast. We're in the hallway being so perplexed. Like, what is this? Have you been saved? What does that even mean? And then as I look back on that moment and I read Paul's scripture, this is the desire that he has for the people that he's writing to. He says, brothers, my heart's desire is that they may be saved. But what does that mean? What does salvation mean? So Paul's desire in this moment is for the people of Israel to experience salvation. Now, what is salvation? I like to think of it through the three R's, rescue, renewal, and restoration. So every single person in this room, we all share the same problem, is that we've all been tainted by sin and we're not living up to our full potential and the standards that God has called us to live up to. And that kind of problem manifests itself in different forms, but every single person in this room needs one thing, and that's to be rescued from our sin and from uh, death. And so this kind of imagery plays out uh, that helps me think through this is like the imagery of a superhero, like a, a superhero coming in to save humanity from the forces of evil and then kind of like, you know, rescue the world from all the problems. Or like this image of a, a firefighter rushing into a burning building to rescue civilians from death. We all need to be rescued from sin and from death. Now, what's interesting to notice if you've ever paid attention is that in movies or in real life, once that kind of rescuing happens, there seems to be no more interaction with the person that rescued and the person that needed saving. Like, it's not like the lifeguard becomes best friend with the person that was drowning, or the firefighter becomes really good acquaintances with the person that he saved from the burning building, or the, or the superhero stays and lives with humanity and becomes best friends with everyone. It's, it's impersonal. But what's amazing about God is that when he rescues us, he doesn't leave us. He remains with us. He stays with us. He interacts with us. He wants relationship with us. So once we're rescued, then he renews us. To be renewed, uh, humanity fell from our original condition of moral purity. And so God's salvation always renews a person's spirit so that we can live a life that's pleasing to him. And as a result, we are restored into right relationship with God. And so this was Paul's desire. Paul desired for people, specifically Israel, to experience salvation, to experience being rescued from their deepest problems, to experience being renewed, having a new life, and then walking out right relationship with God. And so people had a, a de, Paul had a desire for this group, and this group was Israel. So who was Israel? Uh, we've heard the nation, but, but what was Israel about? Well, Israel was a Hebrew nation uh, that God would use to bring restoration to the world by bringing Jesus through their lineage. And so what do we know about Israel? Well, for, for starters, they had the Old Testament, okay? We like to think that the Old Testament is like a Christian Western book. It's a Jewish book. It was uh, the book of Israel, and it kind of had the written history of God's involvement with humanity. And so all of this is recorded in the Old Testament. And so Israel, this nation, they were very familiar with God. In fact, it was uh, not uncommon for a Jewish person to assume that because they were descendants, that they were children of Israel, that they were saved, that they were good, that they were right with God. And this kind of idea plays itself out quite often. 
where we think to ourselves, well, my, my parents went to church, and my grandparents went to church, and uh, my, my friends are in church. Uh, therefore, like, I'm a good person, and uh, I believe that I'm going to go to heaven, and I believe that, uh, that, that God owes me something. And so what Paul is saying to this group of people is that even though you, you had the Old Testament, even though you're, you're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that wasn't enough. And so Paul had this desire for them to experience salvation, to personally experience it for themselves. And so why did Paul, this, this man, desire this? Well, because he had experienced it for himself. And we kind of read the story, you might be familiar with it, in Acts where, where Paul gets knocked off his donkey and has this life-changing moment with the living God of the, of the universe. And then everything in that moment changes. And from that moment on, Paul converts from being a religious Jew to a passionate follower of Christ. And because he's experienced something so amazing, he has this desire that his people, that his community experience that too. And uh, what I've noticed is that uh, whatever you know, we're passionate about whatever we recommend to people, you know, we've usually experienced it for ourselves first. Like, uh, we never recommend a Netflix show that we've never watched. I mean, I've already been recommended like five shows this month. You should check out this. You should check out that. It's so good. I'm like, I don't want to. Uh, or like, oh, dude, you should go check out this restaurant. It's so good. Get this on the menu. And, and, you, and that's what we do as, as humans is that when we've experienced something so good, there's this innate desire to want to share it to bring it to somebody's life so that they could experience what you experienced. And so what Paul desires here is that he's experienced salvation. He's experienced radical love, radical mercy and grace. And and he's experienced it in the person of Christ the way that he couldn't have by keeping the law or being a religious Jew. And And he has this desire for his people. I want you to experience this for yourself. And so we get to Romans chapter 10 verse 2 and he says for I bear them witness when Paul says I bear them witness what he's saying is that I was just like them I was that religious person trying to do all the right things to get closer to God hoping that I would experience godliness but it wasn't working and and I bear them witness that they have this zeal for God but it's not according to knowledge so let's examine this word zeal Uh, Everyday definition of zeal is pretty simple. This eagerness, this dedication, passion, enthusiasm for something or someone. For our purposes today, we're going to go back and forth between passion and enthusiasm. And so you can be zealous for God, but the word zeal is not exclusive, an exclusively religious word. You can be zealous for a band, a, a sports team or a specific cause, whatever it is that interests you, you can be zealous for. And so that usually looks like being passionate and devoted to whatever subject you're interested in. And zeal, zeal can be good, but it can also be bad. You can pour out your energy, your passion, your life into a cause that will make this world a better place, or you can be passionately devoted to a cause that divides. We're familiar with these white supremacist hate groups, religious terrorist groups, And this was Paul's life. And so Paul's early life was marked by religious zeal, brutal violence, and the relentless persecution of the early church. This was his full-time job to, to drag out Christians, arrest them, and persecute them, to stop the way of Jesus. 
And so Saul was zealous for his faith, and this faith did not allow him to compromise. And so this zeal led him down the path of religious extremism. And so zeal, passion, enthusiasm, it can be a very good thing when it is focused, but when it's misguided, it always does more harm than good. And so here's why zeal can be a little deceptive. We allow our passion, we allow our energy to kind of get ahead of us, and then it can hinder us from seeing what's really there. This plays out all the time in our day-to-day. I've had countless conversations with, with students specifically that say, uh, this girl is going to be my wife, and uh, she's awesome, and she's great, and I'm going to marry her. And I'm like, what do you love about her? I, I don't know, but this is the one. And so this, this passion, this enthusiasm, this zealousness kind of gets ahead of you. And instead of seeing what's actually there, instead of examining counsel and, and taking wisdom from others, you let your passion get ahead of you, and it misleads you to a place you were never supposed to be. Happens all the time. Uh, another example that I'm familiar with, uh, uh, students. Maybe uh, adults when you were younger, you thought to yourself, I want to I work in this occupation I want to pursue this career. And when asked why, you would say, well, I want to make a lot of money out of college. And so you pursue this career thinking to yourself that uh, this is what I want to do so I can can be rich out of college, make a ton of money, but you never counted the cost. You never examined and uh, took a moment to think how difficult this could be, and you never mentally prepared yourself for that math class or that science class or whatever it is. And so when you get to that place, you realize, man, this isn't for me. And you end up changing your major maybe not once, not twice, but a few times. And so we let this zeal, this passion get ahead of us, and then it misleads us to a place that maybe we were never supposed to be in. And that's why zeal, when it's misguided and not focused or rooted in knowledge, like Paul says, when zeal isn't rooted in truth, it's going to mis guide us, and take us to places we were never supposed to be. And Paul experienced this. Paul was so zealous for the law. Paul was so zealous for, for doing, for being a good Jewish priest that it took him to this place that whenever anybody interfered or stood up against that, religious extremism came up and said, I am going to shut this down to the point that Christians were murdered and and persecuted and thrown in jail in the first century. And so Jesus kind of speaks into this in Luke 14, 28. He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Zeal is not a bad thing. Just zeal without knowledge. I love how a few other translations put it. The Amplified says, I testify, Paul's speaking, that they have an enthusiasm for God but not in accordance with correct and vital knowledge about him and his purposes. So there's an enthusiasm about God, but it's not rooted. It's not standing against the knowledge and truth of who God actually is. The NLT says, I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected. Here's a quote from Eric Geiger. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous because we can be deeply and sincerely passionate and completely misguided because we don't know the truth. And zeal 
passion, enthusiasm that is not rooted in Jesus will be rooted in something else. And any area of our life that is not rooted in Christ makes a very poor foundation. And so zeal with knowledge means that we're passionate uh, with knowledge. It means we're passionate and enthusiastic about God. But it is from a place where we're rooted in truth, love, and grace. And that is what affects and directs the way we live. Because of his truth and his love directs the way we live. So we look at verse 3 and it says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So this word righteousness, it, it's in the book of Romans, uh, dozens of times, it's almost the central, one of the central themes of the book is, is how man could be made righteous before God. And so what does this mean? The Bible's standard of human righteousness is God's own perfection. In every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, every word, God gives us an image of, God's, of his own character and, it is the, and it's the standard by which we measure human righteousness through the law. So to be right standing means that I'm perfectly moral, upright, and holy before him. And that is the only way that I can stand before a perfect God. And so when, when we get saved, when we experience salvation, what ends up happening is this great exchange where my unrighteousness is given to Jesus in exchange for his righteousness. So then when I stand before God, I can stand as holy, blameless, and upright because Jesus Christ presents me that way before him. And so the Jews of Jesus' time, the early first century Hebrew nation, how did they seek to establish their own righteousness? Well, it was through keeping and practicing the law. So when the scriptures talk about the law, what exactly does that mean? Well, the law takes us back to the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Bible. And so when we think about the law, what usually comes to mind is, is the Ten Commandments. And, and I, I just love when our minds go there because usually we can't name all ten, and, and that's not a very good sign if, if that's what God calls us to live up to. It's like, oh, I can name five, and I, if I can't name the other five, I'm probably breaking them. Uh, and so we think about like the, the thou shalt not do this or thou shalt not do that, murder, adultery, steal. We're familiar with those. But the list doesn't stop at 10. There was actually 613 laws. And the law occupied a huge place in the life and culture of Israel because the people of Israel were in a covenant with God. Now, we don't use this word too often, but a covenant is an oath-bound relationship. It's a formal agreement between two parties. And these two parties uh, promise to each other to keep and honor the conditions of whatever oath is laid out. And so, for example, marriage is an oath-bound covenant between two parties, man and woman. Technically, three parties, God, man, and woman. And so God established a covenant, a formal agreement between him and the children of Israel. And in this covenant, people are governed by the rule of law. And so when the law was given... Obedience to the law was demanded as part of their commitment towards God. And so when you kept the law, it meant that you were maintaining right relationship with God. When you broke the law, relationship was broken. And then there were consequences for this. Uh, There were sacrifices and penalties to atone and make up for the wrong. 
And so it ended up being the law was supposed to be serve two things. One, it was supposed to uh, be a reflection of God's character, that God is holy, righteous, merciful, graceful. And then the second purpose that the law would serve is to reveal who we really are. It would reveal uh, what is wrong with us. I love a quote that I, I, I read online that, that the law is like a mirror. And when you look into the law, you get an accurate picture of who you are. It reveals what's wrong with us. But how did this first century Jewish nation use the law? They used it as a means to get approval and be right before God. They thought that if they could keep this law, keep all 613 commandments perfectly, then and only then will God love them, accept them, and bless them. And where did they go wrong? The children of Israel misrepresented what the word of God said, and as a result, developed a system of salvation by works. And well, this is the exact opposite of what Jesus comes to do. Jesus doesn't come to institute a salvation that's based on works. That's based on, uh, here's what I can do so that you can save me. And then once we you know, get everything checked off, then Jesus can look at us and say, okay, now that you're dressing right, now that you're acting right, now that you're behaving right, and you look kind of presentable, then I'll come save you. That's what religion says. It says, do. Uh, but, but to quote um, some reformers, the gospel says, done. The gospel says that, that it's already been done. There's nothing else that you can do. Jesus comes and he rescues you. He renews you. He restores you. Not because you can bring anything to the table, but because he's good and he loves you. And there's nothing that we can do to rescue, renew, or restore ourselves. And so he comes and he institutes a salvation that's simply based on faith. Can you trust and believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and he wants to rescue you and bring you into right relationship with God? And well, this, this salvation by works, we see this played out in, in the life of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were this influential Jewish sect of rabbis during the times of Jesus. And so this group was especially known for their religious piety. And in fact, the word Pharisee comes from this word that means separated. This idea that if we can separate ourselves from all the wrong that's out there, we can live holy and righteous and, and we can be different. And then God will be pleased by us. And so one of the main teachings of the Pharisees was that Jews should observe and practice all 600 plus laws. And they were extremely serious about this. Uh, And so one of their ways that they would keep the law was to put a fence around the law. And so there's a, a, a word for this that's called Chumrah in Judaism. You can, look, you can look this up. It's pretty cool. And so this was known as putting a fence around the law. So what this meant is that if there was a pit and you falling into this pit represented you breaking the law, what they would do is say, we're just going to put a fence around this pit so that you can't even get near breaking it. And then in turn, you can keep the law and be right before God. And so how did this play out? Well, one of the well-known commandments was to keep the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was a holy day on the seventh day uh, designed to to rest, 
uh, in remembrance of God as he rested from uh, creation. And they were very strict about this. And so they believed that if you were to fully rest, that means you cannot work at all. Because if you're working, that means you're not resting. And if you're not resting on the Sabbath, you're breaking the law. And so they got intense about this. So in the Mishnah, which is a Jewish collection of commentary and writings on the Old Testament, uh, they have 39 categories of unforbidden acts that you should not do on the Sabbath. Now, notice that I said categories. Categories like cooking. You're not allowed to salt me or turn on the microwave because that's considered work. Categories like uh, plowing. You're not allowed to go and tend to the animals or the field because that's considered work. It got so bad that they said, this is the maximum amount of steps you can take on your Sabbath before it's considered work. They said, you're not allowed to spend money on the Sabbath. So one of the ways that they would put a fence around this they would add extra regulations and stipulations. So they would say, you're not allowed to spend money on the Sabbath. So, with this, so what we're going to ask of you is don't even touch money. Because if you can't touch money, then you won't be inclined to spend it. And the Pharisees were well known for this. They were well known for adding extra rules and regulations around the law so that they would be more motivated to keep them and practice them. And so in the New Testament, Pharisees, they're not spoken very highly of by Jesus. Uh, on quite a few occasions, they're called hypocrites. And I'm sure every single person in this room has called somebody a hypocrite at least one time in your life. And uh, I'm sure every single person in this room has probably been called a hypocrite at one point in their life because no one is perfect. And uh, Jesus would call these Pharisees hypocrites. And this comes from a Greek word that meant like an actor, a stage player. And so in the ancient Greek theater, these actors, they would wear large masks to kind of display and represent the character they were playing. And so what Jesus is essentially saying when he's calling these Pharisees hypocrites is that, man, these, these Jewish people who are, who are trying to practice the law and adding on all these extra rules and regulations because they think that's going to make them right before God, uh, they're actors. They're wearing masks. They're pretending to be upright and holy and this outward beautiful person. But behind the mask, they are dead and they're broken. In Matthew 23, Jesus says that they preach, but they do not practice. In that same chapter, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you tithe the mint and dill, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In their attempt to keep the law zealously, they missed out on what the law was actually about. Justice, mercy, faithfulness, loving obedience towards God. And so they had this zeal for doing the things of God. But this zeal for keeping the law was not rooted in correct knowledge and truth. And so zeal for God, passion for God, enthusiasm for God is only valuable if it is attached to the right truths about God. Because if your passion for God is not based on love and grace and rooted in the fact that you cannot save yourself, your zeal for God will be toxic 
and turn you into a prideful and judgmental person. And as a result, their zeal, the Pharisees' zeal, took them to this place of self-righteousness and hatred. Self-righteousness because they thought, you know, they considered themselves good because they were doing good things. And hatred because they hated anyone who stood in the way of their cause. To the point that they had Jesus killed. I love this quote from Pastor J.D. Greer. He says, religiously zealous people can be the worst. So true. (laughs) Love it. So simple. (laughs) Religiously zealous people can be the worst. Religion can make people violent, bigoted, self-righteous. I'm sure every single person in this room has experienced this or know someone who has experienced this. I mean, you spend enough time on social media and this idea really comes to life. If all I knew about Jesus was what I saw on social media, I don't know if I would be a Christian. Because it's so easy to misrepresent Christ because we let our passions, our preferences, our own experiences growing up inform the way that we see Jesus. And so we end up turning Jesus into a version of Jesus and representing him as someone he never claimed to be. And this happens all the time. People can get so zealous about their preferences and their own ideas and ideology and have no knowledge of the scriptures. So they turn Jesus into this type of person that says, oh, well, Jesus hates this group of people. Jesus hates this skin color. Jesus hates this attitude. Jesus hates this lifestyle. In fact, Jesus philosophically actually lines up with my political ideology and he hates this way of thinking and doing government or life or fill in the blank. And so zeal without knowledge, correct truth about who God is, is dangerous. Because religiously zealous people have so much to say But so little of it is rooted in grace, love, and truth. And I I spend so much time with people hearing about how everything went wrong growing up. And I I love asking this question, man, who who is Jesus to you? And and you get answers all over the spectrum. Uh, I heard growing up that Jesus was this type of person. I heard that Jesus was this type of person. Uh, well, what's keeping you from being in relationship with Jesus? Oh, well, uh, my lifestyle, my sin, my attitude, my background. And if you really knew Jesus, he would say that none of that stands in the way from being in relationship with him. And, and, and what makes the gospel so amazing is that he would come and meet you where you are, despite what's going on around you and in you, and pursue relationship with you so that you can live the way that he's called us to live. And so many people have these opinions about Jesus, and it kind of influences the way that we think about him. But Jesus has the ability and the power to transcend and destroy all misconceptions, all unbiblical opinions that people have of him. And he's so much better. And I would say to you, don't settle for a Rotten Tomato review of Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, uh, that movie's 20%, I'm not going to see it. 
Jesus is off the charts. Literally, because he's awesome. Don't settle for this Wikipedia definition of Jesus' life where other people can go in and write about their own opinions and ideas and experiences. Don't settle for another person's experience, your friend, your family, your grandma. Experience him for yourself. And this was Paul's desire. Experience Jesus for yourself. Experience his life-changing power and grace and love. He is so real, and he's so much better than the law. The law points to Jesus, and it's all about him. And everything that you're looking for can be found in this relationship with God. I had the honor of uh, celebrating one year of marriage with my wife who's in kids' church. It's, it's, I mean, it's awesome, babe, over there behind the wall. Uh, it's so funny because every time I preach, you get scheduled to work kids' church, which works out in my favor because I never know what I'm going to say, and uh, she thinks my jokes are terrible. So this is good. Okay, a little bit more confidence. And so uh, we went to the Bay Area of California, spent some time in, in San Francisco, Muir Beach. And so uh, being in that part of California, uh, I, I noticed that Yosemite National Park was a five-hour drive away. And so being from Texas, I mean, five-hour drive is, is child's play. I mean, we can drive 10 hours, and we're still in Texas. So I was like, we have to do this. This has to happen. So we rented this tiny little smart car and just kind of hit the road and drove straight to Yosemite. And so I had heard wonderful things about this place. Uh, a handful of friends told me, man, you got to check this out. You got you to do this. Look at that. Um, I had seen all the documentaries. Um, I had, you know, heard stories of this place. But nothing prepared me for experiencing Yosemite like being there firsthand and taking it in for myself. Because the way that my friends described the Merced River or El Cap and Half Dome and Glacier Point, it didn't do justice. I couldn't experience it the way that they experienced it until I stood there for myself. And I mean, awe came over me. And as I look back and I, and I sit there reflecting how awesome and amazing that was, uh, I, I, can, I can confidently say, man, I love Yosemite National Park. Like, I want to live there. This one is just like, you know, get an Eno and sit in a hammock there all day. And I, and I know that I love that place because I've experienced it firsthand. And all of my friends and, and, and the internet and videos said this and said that, but it wasn't until I experienced it for myself that I was able to take in the true beauty and magnitude of this place. I love this, this quote, uh, this country song quote. It says, if you don't believe in God, you've never been to Texas. And uh, come on, country music. And uh, well, if, if, you don't, if you still don't believe in God, go to Yosemite. It's a close second. It's awesome. And my encouragement is that Don't just settle for another person's experiences or words or ideas. Experience God for yourself. Go all in with Jesus and step into a relationship and experience his love. Because then and only then does it make sense. I mean, I I can talk to to people who have been there and I'm like, dude, do you remember what it was like just kind of driving up the road and then you saw the valley? And it's like, yeah, and it was awesome. There's like this connection. Don't just settle for another person's experience, another person's ideas or words. Experience the living, true, relational God for yourself. And so then we get to Romans chapter 10, verse 4. And it says this, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
Now, we just spent some time establishing how the Jewish elite sought to use the law to establish their righteousness, and they were passionate about it. And Paul, in one verse, declares that those days are over. The law, the system, has been rendered useless for establishing righteousness in a person's life. Only Christ can do that. And the Jewish elite of Jesus' time failed to understand this. Their zeal for keeping the law, for doing things their way, led them to a place where they thought that upon keeping this law and living this life, they would receive God's approval and more importantly, be made righteous before him. They attempted to establish their own righteousness and missed out on experiencing salvation from Jesus freely that he offers to everyone who believes, as it says in verse 4. Oftentimes, we, we can spend so much time trying to do the right things and become the right person that that preoccupies us and keeps us from experiencing Jesus. He's just right there, offering, opening up his arms to everyone who believes. And so why, why does this matter, and, and what does this have to do with you, and, and what does it have to do with me? Like I said, it's so easy to get caught up in this idea of doing things so that we can be right before God or so that God can love us. Uh, This idea that I'm a good person and I I believe I'm going to heaven. We fall into this, you know, idea that I'm really sincere and I'm really kind and and I'm authentic and real. Therefore, God loves me or he owes me something. And yet what Paul is saying is that if there was ever a group of people who were sincere, who were good, technically doing all the good things, because, I mean, the law had had some pretty great stuff in it. It was the Jews of Jesus' time. And Paul would say to them that their efforts were still not enough. And so Paul's desire for this group of people is, I want you to experience what I've experienced. And it's way better than the life that you're trying to live now zealous, passionate, enthusiastic, trying to do all the right things, yet miss the point. This scripture says that this law, it's all about Jesus. So they were zealous, passionate about keeping the law. And and maybe you find yourself here today, and, and quite frankly, you don't share the same zeal towards the law, the Jewish law. You could probably care less about this country's law. You're like, oh, no cop, no stop, don't care. Um, and maybe you don't share this zeal, this passion. But everyone in this room is, is passionate and zealous about something. And if it's not a passion, a zeal for Jesus, it'll be a passion for something else that will mislead us and misguide us. So my question to you is, what are you zealous about that is keeping you from experiencing God and more of him? Maybe you're not zealous or passionate at all. Maybe you just find yourself in a stagnant place desiring growth. And to make it even more personal, what I, what I believe Jesus wants to do is that he wants to take your passion, your enthusiasm for whatever it is that you, you have this interest in. It could be your job, relationship, your, your school goals, career goals, life goals, or maybe you have no passion. But I believe what he wants to do is that he wants to give you passion And he wants to redirect that enthusiasm and that energy towards him. And so instead of pouring out your 
your life, pouring out your energy into these interests. He redirects you to live for him. And what happens is that when we pour ourselves out to live for God with passion and enthusiasm and energy, he pours out his life into us. And so when we kind of pour ourselves out to other things that aren't relational, they don't give us life, our zeal, our passion for Jesus, he gives us his life. And when we experience more of him, then in turn we can become better stewards of the things that we're passionate about because we're no longer running after those things to give us a a sense of identity or, or meaning or purpose. And so it's this wonderful mystery that, that when we pour ourselves out to God and we passionately pursue him and experience him, we receive more of him. And where other things take away our life, our energy, our time, Jesus gives us life. So my encouragement is experience the person of Jesus experience his love and grace for yourself. And don't let zeal for lesser things get in the way of the one thing that matters most. Jesus Christ, the one true God. Let's close in prayer as we transition to communion.